Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Questions Jesus asked, <clears throat> and we should answer. Do you ever watch a talk show or listen to one on the radio? <clears throat> And the discussion gets a little warm for the host. And the talk show host is getting some pushback from the guest. And sometimes the talk show host will stop it. It's too personal. It's too hard. And they'll stop it with something like, hey, this is my show. I get to ask the questions here. Well, I suppose Jesus could say the same thing. This is my show, and I get to ask the questions here. But I don't think that's the reason he gets to ask the questions. I think he gets to ask us questions because his questions are better than anybody else's questions. His popularity as a traveling rabbi, it hung on his ability to ask good questions. And with, with a question well-placed, he could silence a critic. Now, usually those critics were the pompous Pharisee the know-it-alls, and, and with a simple, direct question, lightning fast, he could silence that critic, and it would delight the crowds when he did that. The question. Somebody has counted and said there are 295 questions that Jesus asks in the pages of the Gospels, and I'll take them at their word. 295, that's quite a few. We've looked at a few already. We've looked at questions that Jesus asks us, like, why do you worry? Good question. Why do we worry? He's asked us questions like, why do you notice a speck in somebody else's eye, but you miss the beam in your own eye? And he's saying that seems a little strange to him. Good question. We've seen him ask questions just last week. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? Another week, he asked the big question, do you believe I can do this? Today, unusual question from the Savior, how much bread do you have? How much bread do you have? That's his question. Now, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14 is probably among the best known. In fact, I would say there's probably no better known story than that one, the feeding of the 5,000. And it's certainly a much-loved story, and it's a many-times-told story. And I think it's because it has all of the right elements in it. Unfortunately, it's almost been assigned to children only. But it's got all the right elements when you think about it. It's got dramatic flow to the story. I mean, something's happening there. And it could go very, very differently. So it's got the dramatic flow. It's got the miraculous. It's got the bumbling, semi-comic disciples who are faced with the dilemma, we don't know how to solve this bread problem. It's a story that makes Jesus look very good and very kind. So it's got all of the ingredients to make a comforting story that can be told again and again and again, and it has been. The feeding of the 5,000, very famous. Now, less famous is a chapter over 
from that one. In Matthew 15, there is a less famous story there, but it is very similar. But oddly enough, for all of its similarities to the feeding of the 5,000, it's the feeding of the 4,000. For all of the similarities, it is completely ignored. Nobody talks about the feeding of the 4,000. Nobody tells the feeding of the 4,000 as a bedtime story to their kids. And I do not know one preacher that has ever preached on the feeding of the 4,000. Maybe that's because 5,000 is bigger than 4,000, so it's a better story. I don't know. So why bother talking about four when you can talk about five? All I know is nobody preaches on this until today. Matthew 15, feeding of the 4,000. I want you to turn there. We'll pick the story up in verse 32. And Jesus, of course, is surrounded by a crowd, and it's a working day for him. All kinds of teaching and events have gone on. And all of these people have come out to hear him. And it says, verse 32, chapter 15 of Matthew, And Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. He's very concerned for their welfare. But it says he's moved with compassion. You see that? That phrase, on that day, he was moved with compassion, that could be applied to every day of his life, couldn't it? He was always moved with compassion. But what he's compassionate about needs a little bit of comment. Jesus is called a great spiritual leader. And as a great spiritual leader, we would expect him to be compassionate, and he is. And as a great spiritual leader, we would expect his compassion to focus on spiritual things, and it does. But he's not just another spiritual leader concerned about spiritual things. His compassion is for physical needs as basic as the food that's going to go in our mouths. So go back to the story. He called his disciples. He said, I, I feel compassion for the people because... They've remained with me now three days, have nothing to eat, and I don't want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples, when you see the word disciple, you insert the word learner, because that's what it means, or follower, or more exactly, apprentice. A follower of Jesus is actually an apprentice. Following the master, doing what the master does. That's what we're to be. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? In other words, we don't have resources here. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So we're talking family units here. So we call it the feeding of the 4,000, but it was certainly many more than that. So here he is, moved with compassion for a physical, basic need like food. 
And in this story, you can see a few cautions, if you look carefully, in this lesser-known miracle, the 4,000 feeding. You can see that he's telling us, don't do certain things. Among them, how about taking things personally? Jesus says, don't. Don't take things so personally. I'm around a lot of people throughout the week, and I'm noticing an unusual number of very prickly people who take things so personally that weren't meant to be personal. But Jesus is saying, among other things, a caution here about taking things personally. Don't do that. If you look at the opening of the story, verse 32, verse 33, it mentions the word we. He approaches them and he says, I have compassion for these people and we need to feed these hungry people. They've been with me for three days. They came out. They stayed out here overnight. They were with me all the next day. They stayed that night. And now it's the next day, and it's coming on evening, and they're hungry, and, and I'm concerned for them. We need to feed these hungry people, because I'm about ready to send them home, and I'm afraid of they may stumble on the way home and hurt themselves. They're overcome with hunger. And he's concerned also for the little children that are mentioned by name at the end of the story. But the disciples' reaction is, well, this is all about us, isn't it? Because their response to Jesus is, where would we get enough food to feed these people? It's about we. And if we focus on we, if we is the focus, where would we get so many loaves? Then they are saying, we can't do anything to deal with the hunger problem here. We can't do it, Jesus. What are you looking at us for? Now, left to this kind of thinking, the crowds would have starved. They would have stayed hungry. And if Jesus is right, serious consequences on the way home would have fallen on some of them. Some of the children might not have made it. Some of the older folks might not have made it. If we is the focus and they had acted on what they were saying, we can't do it. But when Jesus calls, I am never the focus, am I? He is. When Jesus asks you to speak up, and talk to somebody like Mike did, his coworker, and invite them or talk about Christ when he asks you to speak or to help or to teach or to serve, and he may be asking you to do something right now. It's never just you. When he asks you to begin sacrificially giving, and we say, oh, I can't do that, it's never just you, is it? He says, I am with you always. I will never leave you. The, the great Psalm 91, he, he talks about all of the I wills. He says, I will be with you in trouble. I will, I will rescue you. I will honor you. I will, with a long life, I will satisfy you. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it's never just me. And when he asks me to do something, it's never just I, it's us. Because he says, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. You're not by yourself. When the Lord asks you to do something, you're never by yourself. When you do things in His name, whatever it is, 
It could be handing out water. It could be encouraging a broken heart. It could be teaching a child. It could be helping to disciple a new believer or just coming alongside a new believer and showing them, here's how I pray. Here's how I read the Bible. Here's how I walk with Christ. Here's how I hear the voice of God. It could be that he wants you to lead somebody to Christ. When you do that in his name, it really is in his name. And it's with his help and with his presence and with his strength and with his creativity and with his energy. And you're not by yourself. You're never on your own, you see. On my own, I am very limited. But in fact, I'm not on my own. Because he's living his life, listen, in you. He's living his life in me. And I've told you before, it's not too much of a stretch to say he's living his life as you. In your shop, on your job, in your neighborhood, in your family, he's living his life in you, you see. So to say I can't do something is to say really that Jesus Christ can't do something. And that's not a true statement. That's how close he is, you see. It's never just me, but it's ever, it's always we when he asks you to do something. It's always that way. It's always that way. So don't take things so personally. There's another caution in this story, and it involves forgetting. Don't. Don't forget. Don't forget what God has done over and over again as the people of Israel are getting ready to move into the promised land and, and Moses delivers him them his swan song. We call it the book of Deuteronomy. It's an extended speech and he says dozens and dozens of times under the inspiration of the Spirit, don't forget, don't forget, remember, remember, remember. Don't forget what God has done for you. Now there's a shuffling that goes on. When Jesus turns to them, he says, listen, fellas, I have compassion here for these hungry people, and we need to feed them, and they begin to panic a little bit, and they shuffle, and they evade, and they deflect, and they try and explain things away. The, the panic that they're feeling about feeding these people is a little bit hard to understand, I'll tell you, because they had already seen him feed 5,000, right? And not that long ago. In fact, in our Bibles, it happened in the last chapter. That's how long ago it was. He fed 5,000. And now they have forgotten. But if they have forgotten the incredible blessings of God, they are not the only blessed people to ever forget a great miracle. It happens all the time. That's what the Hebrew Scriptures are really all about. That's why we have them. We call it the Old Testament. It's more proper to call them the Hebrew Scriptures because there's nothing old about them. It's a timeless story. And it's the story of forgetting, really, of how people forget what God does. There are cycles throughout that Scripture of God coming through. He comes through. He does something incredible for His people. Time goes by. And they forget. And they pull away. He sees them pull away and he warns, please don't pull away. There'll be a disaster. They don't heed the warning. There is a disaster. It can't be any other way. And so they cry out in their agony, where is God? Where is God? 
And he says, here I am. And he comes through again. And time goes by and they forget again. And it starts over again. And that cycle of forgetting begins early in Israel's life as a nation. Let me show you what I mean. Turn back to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 17, there are a couple of comments that are made. You'll find one in verse 3 and one in verse 7. But the people thirsted there for water. Where it is is immaterial. At this point, they're thirsty, and they're in the desert. The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, the leader. And we've even got their grumbling verbatim. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us? To kill us and to kill our children and our livestock with this thirst. And they pick up the refrain again in verse 7. And he named that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord. Those two Hebrew words mean quarrel and testing. Because they tested the Lord and they quarreled with the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? How short their memories were. When you realize that just a few days before this, not much more than a week or so, they had completely forgotten something incredible. And what we're seeing here is their very first time as a nation of falling away, their very first questioning of God. In fact, it leads to an accusation, you're going to murder our children, really. But you know what they had forgotten that had happened? And it had happened only a couple of short weeks before. It was an event so grand and so dramatic, a deliverance so spectacular, that the director, Cecil B. DeMille, made it the dramatic high point of his movie and the focus of his best special effects. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments movie. And I'm talking about the Red Sea deliverance by God. And when the movie maker displayed it, that was the high point of the film, and he wasted no effort and no money on trying to convey it because it was such a big deal. And they had already forgotten it, that they had been delivered by a dramatic miracle. And here they stand thirsty, and they've forgotten in two short weeks what God had done. So if disciples are standing in front of 4,000 desperately hungry people, and more than that, when you consider the families involved. And, and they've got no way to feed them. And they have also forgotten. They've forgotten the feeding of the 5,000. Well, if they're doing that, they're not the first people, nor will they be the last to forget what God does. Now, I don't want to get personal. But have you ever forgotten what God has done for you? We sang a song, Amazing Grace, earlier. You know that the writer of that song, John Newton, was a slave trader back in the days when slave running was legal, not only in our nation, but in England. And he was an awful human being. He bought and sold other human beings. He was debauched. He was as low and as dirty in every way you can think of as a human being could be. But he encountered Christ, and he dramatically gave his heart to Christ, and for the rest of his life, he lived for Christ and had an impact that we're still feeling today. 
but he wanted never to forget what had once happened to him. Because you see, he got so involved in slave trading that it took over his whole life to the point that he got in debt himself. And for two years, he was a slave. And he was treated horribly. And he wanted never to forget what God had delivered him from. So John Newton had a plaque made and put on his fireplace. Because in those days, fireplaces weren't an ornament. You tended to that fire most days. And so he knew he would be looking at that fireplace a lot. It would be the same as if we put a plaque or a saying or something on our refrigerator because we stick our heads in there a lot. But he had a plaque put above his fireplace so he would never forget. And he had them paint on it the verse that comes from Numbers. Never forget that thou wast once a slave in Egypt. He wanted never to forget that God had delivered him from slavery. Never forget that thou wast once the slave in Egypt. But back to these disciples, more than forgetting, maybe as they stood there faced with these people to feed, maybe more than forgetting that he just fed 5,000, maybe the problem was they didn't believe that that miracle could be duplicated. Oh yeah, he had done it once, but we're not sure he could do it again because after all, there were some pretty big differences between that early feeding and this one. And and maybe this one was seen by them as a bigger challenge than feeding 5,000. And it didn't have a lot to do with the numbers. These people on this day, as they stand there twiddling their thumbs, not knowing what to do in a near panic, how are we going to feed these people, not understanding how they're going to do the deed. These people this day that they're talking about were mostly non-Jews. They're in that part of the country These are people that have no claim on the God of Abraham. The 5,000, those were all Jews. And so God, of course, would help them and feed them, of course, but these people were not so sure. Before the feeding of the 5,000, there were villages nearby, that's what we're told. And if the disciples had had no money, in fact, maybe they could have raised some money and they could have gone into those villages and maybe they could have bought enough bread to feed those 5,000 people. But here, for this one, they're southeast of the Sea of Galilee where there is nothing. It's a wasteland. There are no inhabitants. There are no people living out there. It's a complete desert. There's not even grass. And we know that because in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says, sit these people down on the grass. But here he says, sit these people down on the ground. It's so bad out there, there's not even grass to sit on. So there are just enough differences between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 to make it seem to these men, these disciples, these apprentices, to make it seem more difficult and the solution impossible. That's how they saw it. But actually, and here they really did forget, actually this time they had more resources than they had before. You, you remember the story because we tell it to our kids. They'd, they'd acquired a bo- little boy's lunch, and it had how much? It had five loaves and two fish. We even work it into songs. 
Five loaves and two fish. That's how much they had for the feeding of the 5,000. But now with the 4,000, we're told they have seven loaves and several fish. So in actuality, they have more resources now than they did before. Now, that's still not enough to get the job done. But it is enough to tell us that they focused on what they don't have. They're focused on what we don't have. Jesus focuses on what we do have. You see, he always asks you, what do you have that can be used for me? He never has one time asked, what do you not have? He opens up a place for us to serve somehow, something he's calling us to do. And we sense he's, he's wanting me to do something, and, and so we, all the time, our default will be, oh, I'm not, I'm not trained in that. I, I can't work with children. I can't go to a nursing home. I can't feed the homeless. I can't teach. I can't lead somebody to Christ. I don't know how to do those sort of things. We're sort of like Butterfly McQueen in Gone with the Wind. I don't know nothing about birth and babies. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. We focus on what we don't have. Jesus focuses on what we do have. I can't lead somebody to Christ. I can't help a new believer navigate their walk with Christ. I, I, Jesus calls us to go and make disciples, but I don't have any experience with that. I don't have enough money to give 10%. I don't have enough to give a missions pledge. We always focus on what we don't have. But you know why we do that? Because what I do not have, when I say that, that causes me to quickly hit the panic button and worry and say it can't be done. So I'm absolved of responsibility because I can't do what I can't do. Or best case, it sends me off trying to figure it out. i got to do this, but I don't know how to do this. And now we've got to work deals and we've got to engineer things so I can do God's work in my own strength. And that's a recipe for disaster. Letting Jesus ask me, what do you have? Recognizing whatever I have, it is never enough. But when I let him ask me that question, it opens the door for God to get involved. Because my stuff, what I have, won't get the job done. That means he's going to have to come through. He's going to have to get involved. I've got to give him room to swing. And we call those things miracles. Miracles. And I just explained to you why miracles and dramatic healings happen in China and South America, but not in our nation so much, because we're always trying to figure it out when he says, just give me what you got and let me do the rest. It's called a miracle. It's called a miracle. We always think, I've got to do it myself. No, you don't. If God calls you to do something, you're never by yourself. If God calls you, don't try and figure it all out. How am I going to get this done? Don't downplay as insignificant whatever you have in your hands. Oh, it's not much. It's broken. All I have is seven breads and a few fish. Don't downplay that. And that leads to the next thing. It involves holding back from Jesus. And again, with this story, he says, don't hold back from me. Look at verse 36. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and he started giving them to the disciples and the disciples gave them 
to the people. He took the seven loaves, which were not enough, not even close. He didn't snatch them away. He didn't jerk them out of their hand. They gave him the seven loaves. And even though it defies the rules of math, there is a very simple story that's easy to grasp, and it has Jesus in front of the treasury at the temple complex in Jerusalem. Jesus is standing, he's watching, there's crowds, maybe hundreds of people around. And their function that day is they're giving their offerings. They're dumping them in the great huge receptacle, a big giant box, ornamented, lettered, fancy. And Jesus is watching his people file up to the treasury and they drop their gifts in. He's waiting for a teachable moment and he sees it when all of these people that are wearing suits that fit, that are groomed, that look good, that are dressed well, that are very happy to par parade what they have and more than happy to let everybody know what they're giving. Maybe as they begin to dump their money in, they count it out. Or maybe they dump it so you can see the gold roll out or they shake it or something. But with great display and fanfare, they dump their offering in the treasury box. Jesus watches. And then a little lady, broken, older, the circumstances of life have bent her over and caused her to come with only the smallest of coins in her hand. It's smaller than a penny in spending power. It's all she's got. She clinks it into the treasury. And Jesus says, there it is. She gave more than all those clowns with all their pomp and circumstance. With all of their tens of thousands, this little gal has given more because she gave everything. She gave everything. She didn't hold back. And though that story defies the rules of mathematics, it's simple to grasp what Jesus is doing there in front of that treasury. He's saying that the amount is not the issue. The amount of what you give to him is not the issue. The percentage of your sacrifice is the issue. How much of yourself are you putting into that thing you're giving him? The more you give Christ, the more he can use. David, what's in your hand? Five stones, that's all. Well, that's more than enough to kill this ugly giant and his ugly four brothers. That's more than enough. Moses, what's in your hand? It's just a stick, God, just a stick. And God says that's just the thing to cause the raging seas to be pushed back long enough for people to leave this wretched land of slavery. Samson, what do you have in your hand? It's a jawbone of a donkey. Just the thing for killing a thousand of the enemy. And then, and then the most glorious of all, a group of ladies on the first day following the cross, the first day that the travel restrictions were lifted that allowed them to go to the tomb, they do. And God says, ladies, what is that you have in your hand? 
what's in your hand, not what's in your heart, because in their heart there is sadness that day, and not what's on your lips, because that was negativity and disappointment. But he says, what is in your hand? What's in their hand are spices and dramatic perfumes. And it's just the thing that is needed to lead them to the empty tomb and there to find that the body is gone and they are the first ones to see Christ has defeated death and hell and the grave. What's in your hand? What's in your hand? The point is, whatever you have, and it may not look like much to you, to your thinking it may be broken, it may be incomplete even, it won't be enough. But the point is, give it to him. Is it a talent? Can you cook? Can you cook? All right, then who can I cook for that will be a blessing to them and honor the Lord? Who can I cook for? Can you fix things? Well, then is there somebody who can't fix things that I could work on their car or I could do some repair in their home and it would bless their life? What do you have? Maybe, maybe it's a temperament. Maybe you have a special place in your heart for people that grieve or for veterans or for special needs kids. Or, or maybe, maybe you have a special place in your heart for people who are heartbroken by death or by divorce. Or, or maybe, maybe it's the broken poor. Others look past them, but you can't. Maybe it's children Maybe you have an open evening. You've got time. God, what can I do with that? Maybe you've got an empty seat in your car. Who could I bring with me on Sunday? Whatever you have, and it may not look like much to you, put it in Jesus' hands. That is your part. And then watch him do his part. Watch what he does here in this feeding of the 4,000 because it is pattern for every time we give him something. He gave it back to them, didn't he? They gave him what little they had, and he handed it right back. He handed it right back to them. They didn't lose a thing. And then he allows them to hand it to the hungry thousands. And he allows them to be the channel of blessing and God's best goodness. And the leftovers then are collected. Did you see that? After everybody is full to the bursting point, they're like the line in one of the Monty Python movies, I can't eat another bite. They're full. They're ready to burst. And they pour all of the leftovers into baskets. The word that's used there, the Greek word for baskets, spurdius. Uh, spurdius was a special kind of basket that was big enough to hold a human. It's a big basket. Paul was led over the wall in a spurdia. Well, how many giant baskets full from that, those seven little loaves? Look at it. Seven. Seven, seven. Only now it's not little seven, it's giant seven. My point is, he gives back. When we give him something, he gives back. He does the job with what we give him, and then the overflow is astronomically more than what we Trust him with in the first place. Never hold back from Jesus. Don't hold back. Final caution here is about delaying. When he asks you to do something, delay. Don't. 
Don't. He's asking because he needs it then. He needs action now. He's not asking you to speak to Christ, about Christ to somebody 10 weeks from now. They need it now. He's not asking you to take that neighbor something that's a show of, of goodness and gratitude. He's not asking you to do it later. Do it now. He's not asking you to teach those children when they grow up. Do it now. Delay, don't. Christ is, has been speaking to some people here. And his question is this question, what do you have? And he says, give it here and watch what happens. We delay. We shuffle. We slow walk Jesus. Well, I plan on giving it to him. Whether it's tithe or time or serving the poor or taking a plunge and talking to the lost or asking a new Christian if I can help them learn how to walk with him. But, but I'll do it later. My intentions are the best. Well, good intentions count, but not for much. So don't wait to hand him what you have. And then do what these people here did. Catch the details. When God does something, catch the details. Be careful to catch the details. And look at what he does. Look at what they do. Causes this story to end incredibly positive. But the disciples noticed something. And, and, and the reason they noticed some of these details is why they're recorded here. But what they did is they took inventory and they never forgot. And what I'm talking about is, is noticing what God does with what you give him. In their case, they looked around and they said, wow, all of the people were filled. All of them are satisfied. They're satisfied. We're looking at a group of people that just a short time before were in a bad way. And they were all hungry and no way to get fed. But now they're satisfied. It wasn't just a little nibble to fight back the hunger pains, but now they're satisfied. And, and then they notice some of the other details. It's 4,000 plus families because they took a survey of what had just happened. They had a front row seat in seeing how God richly, lavishly blesses, and they didn't forget it. They absorbed all the details. Seven man-sized baskets left over, plus was eaten by thousands, and it came from so little so when God does something, when he takes something you give him, try and notice when he's, he asks you for something. Try and imagine how many people will be blessed if I say yes. How, how many lives will be enriched if I give of my time or my talent or my resources? How much hope or joy will flicker into some life because you gave something to Christ and turned loose of it. Play it out. Play it out. If I agree to help with the kids' program on Thursday night, or if I bring somebody to church with me, or if I'm faithful every Sunday, is there somebody there who would be encouraged just because I'm there? Play it out. Catch the details. Who will it encourage? 
Well, me for starters. But if I give 10%, if I hand out waters, a chain reaction is started, and where might it go? There were a group of young men just barely out of their teens. And one night they decided to go hear a speaker by the name of Mordecai Ham. You don't know Mordecai Ham, but in days gone by, he was a a very well-known speaker. He was a gospel teacher who would travel from church to church, and he was very effective, and God used him in a great way. And and in certain circles and parts of our nation, he was fairly well-known, and he was going to be at a specific church that night, and so these young men decided, let's go hear this guy. And they got to the building, the church building, and it was jammed out because of his popularity. And so they barely squeezed in the the back doors. And the young men all found seats. People scooted over and made room, but you can only make so much room. And one of the young men had nowhere to sit. And he was embarrassed because he couldn't sit down like everybody else, and he felt like a sore thumb. And so his embarrassment caused him to start and head for the door. He was just going to sit outside. But before he got to the door, a longtime member of that church got up and went over to him and introduced himself and said, what's your name, son? He said, my name's William. He said, well, William, sit in my seat. And he gave up his coveted aisle seat in the church. And that's the night that Billy Graham met Jesus Christ. There's a chain reaction that is started. When God asks us to do something and we say yes and we give Him what He's asking for and we turn loose, there's something that's set in motion that we have no way of knowing where this will end. Savor those details. Try and notice, try and imagine what can happen with a simple exchange when Jesus comes to you and says, what do you have in your hand? What could happen? Musicians, come back and help us as we, as we close this service. And I want you to, to do that for the next couple of moments. I want you to imagine, because it's not imagination. It's in this word. We read it. Jesus saying to you, what do you have in your hand? What do you have that he can use? Time? talent, your temperament? Do you see a need that he's wanting you to fill? It may be very small, and what you have to give him, you may say, well, I don't have much. It's never the point. Because when I give it to him, it's not me, now it's we, see? So what do you have in your hand? Just stand with me. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine the Savior however you imagine Him. And He approaches you and He says, What do you have? What do you have? Why don't you give it to Him? Don't hold back. Don't delay. Don't slow walk Him. 
Give it to him. What do you have? Give it to him. Surrender it to him. Let's sing that chorus, I surrender all. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.